0: Hi folks, good. So far you look like cigar store Indians but to hear a couple of voices means you're alive. I am John Hirschman as you just noted and to give you context, I was the uh, former pastor now the pariah pastor, West End Assembly of God. Let me take this thing off, Um, I haven't tested positive so I hope you haven't either. It really is an honor for me to, uh, to be here today and to share with you, and I've got to uh, admit to you right up front that I am not the world's greatest preacher, but I will tell you this, that in my 40 years of ministry at West End, there were many times when I was preaching a sermon that people were, in, were cured of insomnia. And it's just an amazing record of of that. And so for those of you who have been suffering some uh, sleep deprivation and uh, you have those issues, this could be a really lucky morning for you. The the light's low and uh, this could be a good time. I know that you are very much aware, and I probably don't need to remind you, especially on a Sunday morning, but we are living in a day when our world has been turned upside down. I'm not just talking about the world of the Sudan or Syria, Iran, uh, Iraq, Haiti. You know, these are are places that we're used to hearing about. You know, places that have disasters that we have become pretty adept at back-burnering in our own minds and hearts because we like staying in the little wonderful cocoon that we have called America for a long time. But now, suddenly, so suddenly... We're facing a shocking new reality that we have some issues that that we've got to deal with in our own world. I mean, think about it. The USA, the country which the rest of the world historically has depended upon for us to solve their issues, suddenly have issues of our own. To date, of course you know that more than 200,000 Americans have lost their lives to COVID-19. And I looked at the news this morning and it's now like what, 205, pushing toward 206,000. no doubt more to come. This has pulled out the security blanket that many of us have lived with as Americans. In a way, up until up till now, it uh, hasn't really happened, at least in my lifetime. We find ourselves biding time, wondering what's next, hoping for just a little bit of good news. Well, here's a little bit of good news up front. Um, most Americans, uh, you and, and I, and those who might be watching online, all of us so far have survived the pandemic. We have been quarantined for months. We're wearing masks. We're doing our best to honor the social distancing recommendations. And we're waiting for this COVID nightmare to end. And hopefully at some point soon, it will You know, I've noticed in things people have said to me, and I even hear it on the news, people are thinking that soon everything will return to normal. But I'm not so sure about that. Because, unfortunately, COVID-19 is not our only problem. We also find ourselves in the perfect storm of social injustice issues, racial injustice in particular record unemployment, and the most toxic pre-election political milieu in American history. So many things are changing. And we're all thinking, will we ever be the same again? Will all of what we're accustomed to and so happy to be a part of ever be the same again? Well, let me tell you about something that hasn't changed in all of this mess. It is the Missio Dei. It is the mission of God, the the calling that Jesus left his disciples and which should continue right to the present in our lives. And you know what? It's that very calling that can make a huge difference in how Christ's followers weather the current storms that we are in. You see, I believe that the issues of our day have placed the church into the perfect position to live out that mission, that calling that Jesus has given us. Historically, when the church has been under fire, it has seen its finest hour. Again and again, the stories are replete of revival, revitalization, and growth that seem to take place at best when the people of God are in desperation, when they're in need of help, and when they turn to Him. I don't know how many of you have read Philip Yancey and some of his books. What's So Amazing About Grace? The Jesus I Never Knew. And he talks in The Jesus I Never Knew. And by the way, that's a fantastic book. You guys got to read that. He is one of the most prolific Christian writers of the 21st century and back into the 20th. But in that particular book, he talks about how that so many generations of the church have survived and even thrived under persecution and under adverse conditions. He cites, for example, China. When back in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s, suddenly these little church groups began to form and the government cracked down on them big time. There was abject persecution and the people were were under fire. And he remarks in his book that out of all of that persecution... Even in the midst of it all, there came the most amazing revival in all of human history from the beginning of the church till now. He said more than 50 million Chinese stood up in that persecution and witnessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are living through such a time of opportunity right now. And through our words and deeds, our message should be providing hope and salvation to the millions of people, you know many of them, who are frustrated, hopeless, and full of fear. We should be the spiritual first responders. But my sense is that so far, the church has not done a very good job of responding to what I would call this great opportunity. That's what I want to talk to you about for the remainder of this sermon It's based on Acts chapter 1, 10 verses from that chapter. And the context is first century Jerusalem, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection as he appeared to his disciples and as he gave them their missional missional walking papers. Follow along with me. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, the apostles, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And the cloud hid him from their sight. While they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, before we go any further, I want to bring to you what I call a loving uh, warning Which I believe is applicable to every congregation right now on earth, including yours here at Gaten. And by the way, this warning is really the take home challenge of this morning's message. And so if your insomnia has not been cured yet and you drop off, you at least know what the point of the sermon was. So here is my warning to you Beware of mission drift. Beware of mission drift. So, what is that? What is Mission Drift? I believe that as it relates to churches and faith-based organizations, it is best defined very succinctly in a little book authored by Peter Greer and Chris Horst titled, The Unspoken Crisis. And here's how they explain Mission Drift. Without careful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. And they give an example. Drift happens slowly for reasons that seem to make good sense at the time. Like, why turn down a donation when the donor is only asking you to tone down your Christian message a little bit? Of course, later it becomes apparent that the desire for more resources has displaced an important biblical value, causing major upheaval in that ministry. In reality, mission drift happens in a church like this, and ours, when anything distracts and detracts the congregation from mission and calling. Most certainly, the current issues of the culture in which we live are posing a major distraction from our vision and calling. Think about it. Only until recently have we been able to meet like this as churches. It has been months that we have been separated as members of the body of Christ, And we've had to depend on media in order to make any kind of connection. And you understand that the body of Christ is the tool that God has given for us to exist together and to be his witness in the world. The church is designed to to instill, to impart vision to the congregants from leadership And then that vision is worked out by the family of God. And we're to meet together like this in order to support one another, to care for one another, to love one another, to at times confront confront one another. And to cheer for one another, to be out and using the calling that God gave us to make a difference in the world. And I think you'll agree with me that this very important function that the body of Christ is to play it's hard to replicate on zoom or or on youtube or any of the other media that that we use anyway let me take you back now to acts chapter 1 and pull it apart a little bit and get you a, give you a sense of of what i'm thinking about today when i talked about I talk about mission drift we learn in chapter 1 that those first disciples in that early first stage of, of church history we're talking about the first century and Forty days after Jesus had died and resurrected from the dead, they were already dangerously close to mission drift. According to the Acts 1 account, they were so enamored with Jesus' talk about the coming of the kingdom of God that when he later issued the promise of the Holy Spirit that would soon occur to empower them, the presence of the Spirit who would baptize them for their mission, Their response went something like this. Wow, Jesus, that's really cool. So, uh, we have some questions about some of the other things you've been talking about. What about that restoration of the kingdom thing that you preached last week at Resurrection Baptist Church? What's that about? Are we understanding you correctly that now's the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, Jesus' response, I'm sure, did not please them. It went something like this are you kidding me? I promise you a powerful, life-giving gift that you haven't even received yet, and your only response is to ask me a question that betrays your worries and insecurities about the future. Well, here's my answer to that question. The timing of the coming kingdom is none of your business. It's nobody's business but the Father's. And then he goes on and says, are you not even a little bit inquisitive about the coming of the Holy Spirit and baptism that he will bring with him? Let me say it to you guys once again with clarity. Stay right here in Jerusalem. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes to you, equipping you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the entire world. Thanks to Luke, a doctor who wrote the book of Acts, we know what happened next. He says in Acts 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and in a cloud hid from them. They were looking intently up into the skies. he was going when suddenly two men, presumably angels, I mean they were dressed in white, yeah, right? Two men said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Here's my translation. Why are you guys staring at the sky? Don't you know that cloud gazing is for the birds? Get going. You've got a mission. You've got a work to do. A work that will be instrumental in the coming of that kingdom that you're so interested in. Don't worry, boys. The kingdom will come in God's perfect timing. But the same Jesus who has been taken from you to the heavens will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. A promise that we live today. Promise that should encourage us, but it should not be the focal point of what we do for Him. Well, they finally got it. In a short time later, they were filled with the promised Holy Spirit power, and they went out and spread the word, starting in Jerusalem, and it extended to the entire world in a short period of time, the world that was known in their day. And all of that is recorded by Dr. Luke and if you haven't read the entire book of Acts you gotta go and read it even this afternoon and catch up on what happened after those first disciples obeyed the commission that Jesus had left with them. And so here's a big question for us. How do we define and implement the commission that those first disciples received from Jesus? In other words, what is our 21st century equivalent of their calling as we seek to stay in mission for Christ? We know it's important to answer these questions because Jesus reminds us over and over again in the Gospels how important it is. In fact, his call to mission is issued in one way or another in each of the first five books of the New Testament, and that includes the writing that I just read to you from Acts To further emphasize this point, what I just read to you, where in verse 8, Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in the whole world, were the last words of Jesus. Must be important, because last words are always important. And surely we get how important it is to Jesus. But my question is whether it is as important to us. That might be another matter. And this brings me back to my warning. Beware of mission drift. There's no doubt that our current issues in America are myriad, and they can be the catalyst to mission drift. Most of us, if not scared, are certainly concerned about what might happen next. To be honest, it feels like many of God's people have moved into serious mission drift. Some of us are thinking, well, it's about time and a perfect occasion to do it is in this pandemic to start caring about me, my life, my family, my issues, my stuff. Of course, there are things happening that should concern us and do require preparation. It's why we all have masks on and, and why we're doing what we're doing to protect the community, the church, and our families, and the people that are around us. All of that is good. But you know what's unfortunate? It's unfortunate that we're thinking that way in a time when our message of hope and confidence in our mighty God counts the most and should be front and center. Let me repeat something I said earlier that might have not resonated with you at the time, but maybe it will at this point. I believe that the issues of our day have placed the church in the perfect position to live out that mission, that calling, that God has given to His church through Christ. Maybe some of the mission drift that is taking place has to do with a theology of missions that has gotten way too technical, in my opinion. You know, it isn't always true that when you take something basic, you ought to improve it and grow it and, and change it and, and make it more palatable, etc. All of the things that oftentimes we do. In my opinion, Things have gotten too complicated with regard to how missions should take place. We offer scripted message to the people of God to go out and be able to say the right things. And sometimes we sound like robots when we talk to people. You know what? Another of the things that boggles my mind is that we have ultimately been guided to a position that our job is just to support professional missionaries Because we're not really capable of doing the kinds of things they do. And so we cheer them on, but we don't feel the onus that they have to feel. The fact of the matter is, the commission that Jesus left us is so simple. It is one that extends to every one of us. Everyone who calls himself, herself a follower of Christ owns this calling, this mission, And here's why I say it's really quite simple. In the four places in the Gospels and the one place in the book of Acts where the Great Commission is recounted, basically there are four things that we're told to do. Go, do, tell, and model. We're to be going, doing, telling, modeling, all of it of course, done through a loving and caring and compassionate spirit That is palpable to those who are in contact with us because they sense, they feel the miracle of what has happened to us that we're trying to convey to them. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. And the context of our calling is by no means exclusive to missions work that takes place only on foreign soil. We have our own Jerusalem right here in the neighborhoods of Richmond. And no matter how hunkered down we are because of COVID, most of us, out of necessity, are still going out daily. I mean, think about it. We go to grocery stores, outdoor gatherings, casual meetings with our neighbors, and certainly with our families and close friends. There are many opportunities daily that we seize to go. My question is, when we're going, are we telling and modeling Are we being influencers for Christ? I'm a shameless name dropper. And I can't resist the temptation this morning to talk about a couple of really important people that I happen to know personally. Surely you've all heard of Bill and Melinda Gates. Do any of you know them personally? Raise your hand if you do. Just what I thought. Well, I don't know them either. They've never done a thing for me. I've never been the recipient of uh, a grant or anything else that comes from them. I just know they're important people. But when I say I'm a shameless name dropper, I'm talking about people that most people in the world don't even know about, but are well known in heaven because of their exemplary obedience to the call of Christ. They are some of the influencers for Christ that I'm privileged to know personally. And I want to tell you about several of them. And let me just tell you before I do this. That these people happen to be from West End. The church that I pastored for a long time. And I have not known a whole lot about you and your church Oh, I've seen so many of the things that you're into and I, I think it's so fantastic and you are doing an amazing job. If it all got put on paper, it would not surprise me if you were doing five times more of the things than than West End is doing. It's not a competition. It's its just uh, an ability that each local church has to, to be able to identify uh, the people who are willing to take the gospel to the world. And so the... Famous people that I'm going to show you aren't famous in your congregation, but they are in ours. I want to start with, I call them the gang of saints, who in Jesus' name every week go to the inner city with casseroles and other delectables to feed homeless people. This ministry began back 19 years ago, almost 20 years ago now, with a lady that you see in the middle of the picture uh, between the other two ladies, she just was touched with something she read in the Bible, a sense that she had a responsibility as a person who has a pretty enviable lifestyle. That scripture reminds her that to whom much is given, much is required. And so she began to have a burden for the inner city and she started this thing alone, feeding, feeding people who are homeless. This has gone on for that entire two decades under her leadership, even now during this pandemic, they're still working on that. They're not great preachers. None of them are. But they are witnesses in their own Jerusalem because they're going, they're doing, they're telling and modeling the gospel. What a blessing to know these famous people and to wonder how in the world they are going to be celebrated When they get to heaven, they're still at it down here. This is Julie Lloyd. She's a sweet lady in our church who is involved in more outreach ministries than I can begin to tell you about. It's like any opportunity that comes up, she's there. She wants to be a part of it. She's been on stateside missions projects, international missions projects. Whatever it is that's going on here at home, she's available to help with it. She's not a preacher either. Nor is she a professional missionary but she preaches sermons through her daily example of Christ-like servanthood that I know those stories have filled the annals of heaven. I didn't tell you, she's 78 years old and still going at it. Finally, I want to tell you about a really famous married couple, Loris and Joyce Johnson. I've known them personally for 40 years. And very few people have impacted my life like they have. My life has changed as a result of me having met them early in the 1980s. I just want to tell you that story for the last couple of minutes that I have to share with you. It goes something like this. Loris and Joyce were lay people working in Florida. They had regular jobs. And they felt a call in the church where they were. They felt a call and responded to it to go to a tiny little country in Central America called Belize. And they had on on their minds an impression of a group of people that were there that they had heard about and how desperately they needed someone like themselves to come and just help them. That group is a group of Mayan Indians spread over Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico but in Belize, as well. At the time, those Indians were listed as unreached people in many of the Christian missiology magazines. And so they went to see if they could reach an unreached people. Unreached people refers to people who might be in the middle of a community where the gospel is proclaimed all the time, but isn't culturally relevant, and then it goes over the heads of some of the people. And the Maya, in that day, were listed as those people. Commensurate to their going to Belize, in our church, we began to develop a same sense that we wanted to be involved in a ministry like that. And so we went to Belize, and we did a building project up in the northern part of Belize that didn't have anything to do with Maya. But at the time, I had that in my spirit, that that while I'm there, I need to find out who these people are and what they're like. And I talked to a missionary there, and I said, we're looking for someone who's involved with the Mayan Indians. Do any of you know of people like that? And he scratched his head, and he said, well, there is one lay couple. He said, they're, got to be honest, a little bit strange, but <clears throat> they're down in the southern part of the country. I understand they're, they're working with the Maya. And I said, do you have their phone number? He gave me a phone number. I called down there and then identified myself as a pastor from the States. had never met lorison and Joyce. And I said, I'd like to come down, kind of impromptu, and, and have you take me to some mine villages. Can you do that? And he said, sure, that would be great. And within hours, I flew down there on a little jitney plane. I'm telling you, it was an experience. And we landed in a grass landing strip, and there he was in this old beat-up SUV and he said come on we don't have a lot of time but I want to take you to two villages well rushing ahead I'll make the long story short he took us to two villages Red Bank and Maya Mopan and to this day as I still minister in Maya Mopan I refer to it as by a bedpan that's the kind of place it was scary place to go with dysentery and a lot of other things that would hound you So they took me to these two villages. And I learned immediately that these two villages were villages that they had through their ministry of two people reached for Christ. Literally the vast majority of the people in both of those villages that were about five miles apart had experienced life transformation through the message that Loris and Joyce shared with them in a culturally relative way, relevant way. They used planographs. You don't even know what they are if you're younger than 40. They are, it's like a a little board with felt on it and you stick little biblical figures on them to tell the stories. But adults were, were so interested in that even though it was a ministry that started for children. And what happened through their contacts with these people that we were invited to become a part of in our ministry at this early stage of what was going on in the mine work in Belize is transformation galore. People's lives changed and an opportunity for us to go and tell and model. And we've been doing that since the early 80s. But here's what I want to leave with you and why they are... So important to me, Loris and Joyce. They are like pied pipers there. And by the way, this year they both went to their retirement for eternity. And I had the privilege of being a part of their funeral services in Florida. But what has stuck with me is the way that they understood their role to influence people. And here is the great object lesson I learned from them. The first time I went to a church service there, a little thatched roof, stick-built church with a dirt floor, hewn benches that were made just from logs that they shaved the bark off of. All of these Indians, about 100 of them, are lined up in this little building. The men on one side, the women on the other side, children in the front, women hanging their babies on the wall in little sacks. It was culture shock for me. And I sat in that building and I had my camera out and I just took pictures with my thought in, in mind that uh, they would never believe this if I just told them about it when I got back home to Red Church. I had to show them. And I was snapping pictures. And when they, when they do a worship service, they celebrate what Christ has done for them and they, they clap to songs that, that at times are, are almost wild and exuberant, but it's just awesome. And so I noted that they were singing a particular song, and they started clapping, and and boy, they were having a great time. And I was clapping with them, and every now and then I'd take a picture, and I looked up front, I was sitting a little further back, and I realized that there was something taking place there that I had never seen. The whole community of children, about 15 of them, sitting on the first two rows, were not clapping. They were doing this. I remember the song they were singing. It's called, What a Mighty God We Serve. I don't recall singing that in their church, but it goes something like this. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Now, I'm not done telling the story, but I need your help. Cigar store Indians, I want you to start patting your left knee, please. Would you do that? Risk that you look a little foolish and risk that I'm playing a joke on you. I'm really not. You can even sing it with me one more time. What a mighty God we serve. Repeat that. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Whoa, I thought when I witnessed this, this has got to be the subject for some psychology project for a college student. This is amazing. Why are these kids doing this? And and as I scanned the rest of the group, the parents were not surprised by this, and they were all clapping. But over to the left, I noticed that where Loris was seated, he was patting his leg like that. And then I got it because I had been with him for that whole day. And it's what I didn't tell you. When he was 10 years old, he lost his right arm. That was his dominant arm. And he lived for his entire life, from age 10 till the day he died, with that handicap. A deficit, if you will. Think about it. How do you put toothpaste toothpaste on your toothbrush if you only have one arm? Hold it in your teeth, right? Hold the toothbrush in your teeth. Put the paste on it. And then use your left hand to brush your teeth. His girls, who are now, of course, grown up with their own children, still do that to this day because they learned that from him. Loris only had one arm, so how in the world could he enjoy a uh, a ceremonious clapping that was taking place with the other adults in that room? So he started by just... Slapping his leg. And the kids looked at him as a hero. He was a guy that had come into their village and had shared with them about Christ. And they were willing to do just about anything and everything that he suggested was a right thing to do in a service. When I go down there now, those kids are the foundation now as adults of the villages that I visit. They learned... About Jesus, they learned about how to function as members of the body of Christ from Loris and Joyce Johnson, from a one-armed man who probably long ago had been written off by society as someone who would have to have very limited roles in whatever they did because he only had one arm. I would like to suggest to you that if you're suffering from mission drift today, you don't even know you're suffering, but that's what's happening that you remember that like those Chinese who rallied in the midst of the worst time for them and suddenly exploded into the greatest revival in, in church history, 50 million plus people, that serving God in that deficit time was for them the salvation of many, many people as they allowed God to do his work through them I offered you that illustration so that you will keep in mind every day of your life that you need to be a knee slapper for Christ. That's for people who serve him at a deficit, serve him with handicaps. Let the professional missionaries do this. Or even for people who continue to keep cloud gazing, who need to discover that that's for the birds and that they need to get to work. I leave that as a challenge to you this morning. And I want to pray for you. As you consider in your goings, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? How are you going to model the message that has changed your life and that can change so many others? I want to pray for this church right now. Lord, thank you for Gaten Baptist. Thank you for these people, Lord, who are here today because they want to serve you and hear from your word and and be your witnesses. Oh, God, I pray that you will just energize them. Call them afresh. May they become a community of knee-slappers for you. In Christ's name.